Okay, welcome back to another episode of College Cast.、Uh, today, we're fortunate enough to have wonderful Professor Salome Amadi join us for a discussion on college wellness and readiness. So, just a bit of background about Salome is that she works as a professor in the Faculty of Social and Community Services at Humber College, teaching in the field of social services, child and youth care, and community development.、Uh, she's also a consultant. Uh, strategist, writer, speaker, and activist for mental health, youth and civic engagement, and community building.、Uh, Salome has also served in board and advisory roles with Lakeshore Arts, Rotary Toronto West, Conscious Minds Co ops, ICA Canada, as well as the Youth Health Action Network with Toronto Public Health. And currently, she serves as a board member in the International Centre of Art for Social Change. And mentors first time entrepreneurs via Ryerson University and WeHub. And if that wasn't enough,、uh, Salome is also the founder of Rexdale Lab, which she started in 2014 and currently leads a three year federally granted study on housing affordability and community based participatory research. So just wanted to extend、uh, a big, <laughs> big welcome to you, Salome, for joining us in CollegeCast. And、uh, just wanted to get started a little bit with talking about your journey up to this point. Maybe you can kind of walk us through your career trajectory, maybe starting with graduation from Western, and then what drew you towards these issues of mental health and community building. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for having me, Trevor. Really honored to be here. I know my, I laughed a little because my bio is probably more confusing. So I'm glad you're asking the question of my zigzag career.、Um, So, yeah, I have a, an honors in health science, and I've, I've found myself working with youth for, for the majority of my、um, working profession,、uh, as well as being part of youth groups when I was in high school prior to that. So, I've always been connected to community. And so, being so closely connected to people、um, has really kind of shown me a diverse、uh, perspective of what people, you know, how people feel and what people do and, and the skills necessary to navigate everyday life, right? And, And the educational piece has supported kind of the,、um, the knowledge and the tools and the statistics to, to understand a little better, to help、um, educate myself and others, and, and have the tools、um, in a professional sense. So,、um, I've definitely studied areas of mental health, history of mental health, adolescent development, anatomy, all that good stuff,、uh, community building.、Um, and so, I've always found myself working with youth specifically. And so, naturally,、um, The well being and needs of youth have always been at the forefront. So these conversations are always had around what, what do youth need, right? And having those conversations and also ob- observing, you know, through our relationships and trust building, what are they going through, the, the developmental years、um, and adolescence? It's an interesting bridging time, right?、Um, they're developmentally、um, rebellious, right, in high school. And so, so and, and we all remember when we were, we were at that age as well, right? And so having the support system、um, is not always a given for anyone, right? Whether it was from childhood or during adolescence when you're transitioning and, and developing,、um, you know, peer groups and, and trying to understand the world and what your future holds because you're bridging that. So, I've always been interested in that and, and worked in that, volunteered in that at LAMP Community Health Center, Pathways to Education in Rexdale, and now through teaching, because now I'm bridging that theory with a practical, right? So、um, I've always supplemented my,、um, 
my work with, you know, what, what, what is going on and what do, what do folks need and, and how else, as well as I'll talk a little bit about, um, I guess my own, um, self-care journey too, because that's important too, right? The, the folks who are doing that frontline work, whether you're in school or getting into the work or supporting someone's mental health, um, administratively or through an, an institution, you know, we, we have to be taking care of ourselves so that we can give from a full cup, right? Um, and so asking youth, what do they need is really important. One of the things I had done years ago, we did a full high school mental health assessment. And even though we, we know mental health is an issue, but what are the issues, um, on a more granular level, um, the grade nines and tens had, had a different order of priorities than the 11s and 12s, uh, sorry, the 10, the 11s, yeah, the 11s and 12s. And so, so we can't treat them each group like a homogenous group as well, right? When we're looking at this. And so having the, the lived experience as a youth um, and um, now working with youth and, and now working with college students, you realize that when you have those close relationships to how unique everybody is and, and, and the unique circumstances and lived experiences that people go through. Um, so I hope to bring that more holistic approach to all the work I do, including in my teaching and, and underscoring self-care, right? So mental health is more than just here's a workshop, but it has to have a more of a holistic approach. Yeah, that's just, that's something especially when we're talking about a holistic approach. Um, this, this is something I've seen come up with uh, a lot of the organizations we've spoken with and student uh, associations that when it comes to things like student housing, mental health, there are different groups that have different needs. Mm-hmm. Not just having international students, what does that look like in terms of what are their needs? What are their what are their wants? Are they mature students? Are they international students? Kind of nuancing that, like you mentioned, getting to the issues on a more granular level. And, and I guess we're seeing that when it comes to students returning to campus now that we've kind of gotten through the first week of colleges returning to some in-person learning, some hybrid models of learning. We're certainly seeing a lot of these issues come up again in this school year when it comes to mental wellness and uh, just some of the research we've gone through, even um, we've noticed that students returning to campus have reported, 70% of them have reported that their negative mental health needs have increased during the past year. Um, 78% have reported that their pre-existing mental health challenges have increased during this past year. So not only when it comes to the these kind of s- symptoms of mental health challenges, there are, like you said, there are a number of deep-seated needs that are that need to be nuanced and need to be discovered when it comes to unraveling not only the situation but what kind of outcomes we need. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a sense, of, just in your experience uh, from a professor's perspective over the last year, what kind of things have you seen? in terms of barriers for students when it comes to learning, when it comes to support systems? Just wanted to get a sense of what what you've seen from your perspective over the past year. Yeah, I think with... Um with COVID, there's there are new new challenges um, that that have compounded the the already pre existing issues. As you read off some of those stats, right? And one of the more significant ones is that seventy percent of mental health um, challenges have their onset during childhood or adolescence, right? So we need these early interventions and interventions. And so with we're now in a collective um, experience that's uh, that's really you know triggering and 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 addra- and kind of creating more barriers around, um, whether it's access, education, finance, food security, housing, all of the, all of those things. And so 
the issues have heightened in the sense that um, moving everything online can be a challenge, right? From every, anything from internet access, right? Working, um, you know, if you if you live in shared in, environment or the environment may or may not be healthy to some degree, um, you know, th- you might not want to participate as much, or maybe you're having um, you don't have access to to healthy, nutritious food, and so you can't focus as much. Um, so I, I, I think generally professors have noticed, you know, higher needs in terms of um, um, asking for extensions, you know, just just a deeper level of empathy and, and compassion and patience. People have experienced deaths and having to take care of themselves if they had COVID um, or other people um, having to move and that sort of thing. And just keeping up with um, schooling is also a challenge. It's already a stressful experience, right? So I think um, in that sense, those challenges, uh, and as you mentioned, the students in post-secondary already experience a high high percentage of you know anxiety and depression and higher rates of um, suicide. Um, it's a leading cause of death, a second leading cause of death, right, um, amongst the young folks in Canada. And so we really have to look at. Um, this this issue this issue has always existed, but what what do we do? What what has been working, right? First of all, and and what else do we need to do, right, to bridge that gap? Um, and I think a more holistic approach is definitely needed. And so, it's both on the institution to be able to provide those supports and alleviate where possible. So everything from being a little more lenient, maybe reducing some of the the course load a little. Um, being, we're definitely more understanding um, as, as long as, you know, we know um, that there is going to be a delay in, in submitting assignments, um, hopefully for the most part, although I, I know I see sometimes online, you know, some institutions around the world are not being as understanding, right? And that those are individuals, right? And, and that happens as well. So what's happening on in the institution to be able to educate and promote uh, an environment of compassion, while also providing avenues and spaces for resources to to take care of ourselves, both the instructors, instructors and professors, um, to take care of themselves, right? Because some of them, you know, we're part time or partial load, so we don't have. We might have multiple jobs. We have our own challenges and things that we're going through, and so um, that can be an interesting interpersonal um, interaction in that way. And and then also, what are what are folks doing individually to? self-regulate and self-soothe and to seek those resources that exist. Um, we do, I don't, um, you know, I, I, it's not like I don't do casework now. I used to do that with high school students, but, you know, on college level, I can't know who's seeking mental health resources and supports. Although we know institutionally, there's a, a bit of a longer wait time depending on the school, right? It could be weeks, it could be months, um, but there are alternative resources as well. Um, but maybe it might be um, you know, a food bank that the student needs. Um, so I always tend to share resources as well. So I always overshare resources. Here's the link to search for food banks near your postal code. Um, there's good to talk, a free confidential phone line support if you can't afford therapy, right? And, and a few organizations have, are also providing free um, um, kind of program-based CBT or, or programs to, to address kind of the lower, mild, moderate um, mood disorders. Um, so, so I think there are supports there, but, you know, we need to still consider are people reaching out for them? Do those programs, they don't work for, they're they're not going to be workable or, or accessible to everybody. Um, and what other things are missing from that holistic picture? 
Yeah, you raise a good point too of not only providing these resources for for students, but when it comes to teachers and educators in general, having safe spaces that they can create that allow them to share their resources, their knowledge, their kind of uh, support mechanisms, and then how that trickles down to affect students. Mm -hmm. You shared recently uh, an article by Kindle Easter, and it was talking about how to build uh, emotional support for teachers. And I I wanted to read the quote because I think this will resonate a lot with uh, with our listeners. Uh, in the quote, she says, students returning to classrooms are carrying the weight of new stressors, anxieties, and in some cases, trauma that will require more attention, empathy, and emotional investment from teachers than ever before. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is, is that she raised this idea that it's not just, it, it is an issue for students as well, but to have these safe spaces that encourage learning. But it's so important to have this for teachers and educators. I wonder if you've had any insight into what kind of supports are available for instructors, for teachers, and what kind of avenues do they need to be made available for instructors and teachers? Yeah, I think that's it's that was that article is really really it was great to it's great to have those conversations that are not always you know in the main in the main like on the main headline um, conversations around mental health, right? The those who are um, giving services and, and even, you know, therapists themselves have therapists, right? So, um, so I think it's really important, um, and institutions. So Humber provides mental health workshops for staff. So there are, are, there's, um, there are services like that. We do have kind of benefits and, and, and service supports uh, on the back end. Um, they, I mean, they have it for, you know, uh, those who are covered, not, not always for partial and part-time, um, but I think the onus is on both p- parties, right? Um, the, we have to recognize that it's everyone's responsibility to promote a supportive environment. And I think institutions do that well, and they're definitely trying their best. And so it's really not a matter of you're not doing what you need to be doing. It's really about, okay, we're doing the best we can do. Now, what are those areas that are still needing a little more support and nourishment? So for example, I've also spent the past two years, you know, diving even deeper into my self-care and making sure my self-care routine is good so that I can have um, healthier conversations. So I'm not going to, you know, be short-tempered or lack compassion or lack empathy, right? So I'm walking the talk too, you know, what I'm teaching, I'm also doing. So I think those are key components, but also understanding that having compassion for for one another, you know, students don't always have compassion for the instructors, right? They, they want to, they want, they might want something done their way, or they don't understand that everyone has their own lives, right? And things going on. And so compassion needs to be all around and it's a skill. Um, and I'm not saying all students are like that, you know, you get a, a handful of students. And so, and that's fine too, right? Those are moments of learning. So we need to appreciate and understand that everyone is going through the, the, the situation together, and, and if we can create that environment from the beginning that it's okay to make mistakes and that we're here to, to you know, reach these specific um, end goals through a healthier process, then we can do that if everyone contributes. So, so I think the workshops help, um, the supports help, but we also, I also need to be able to do that myself and self-regulate, right? And I think that goes for everybody as well. And with students, you know, it, our younger or more vulnerable populations, they need additional support and guidance, right? Because they're still navigating a world that's been kind of created for them in many ways. Um, and they don't all have the skills and tools in their toolbox, right? Or they've had 
poor role models or, or a more challenging upbringing. So as adults, it is our responsibility to be more empathetic to that and more compassionate. And if I'm not compassionate to myself, then it's going to be more difficult to be compassionate to the people around me, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you raise a good point with that, with uh, being compassionate and being not only compassionate with others, which is so essential, but with yourself and and talking about the importance of self-care. Because I think there's this assumption that it's more important to serve others at the expense of your own self when it comes to support and uh, care services. It just makes me think of in first aid, one of the first rules they have you do when you assess a situation is looking for things that will harm you. So Mm -hmm. it's this idea of care starts from a point of Mm self-care and branches out to impact others. And you can't fully care for others without caring for yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's kind of like also when you're on an airplane, you have to put on your own oxygen mask first, right? Otherwise, you can't really help anybody else. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So what what kind of prompted you to look into this self-care journey for yourself? Was this something that has kind of been developing over time? Or was it something, an event or some sort of impetus that sparked that? Yeah, that's a good question. And the simple answer is burnout. <laughs> Working in frontline work um, for so long without the self-care. Because I, I mean, I don't remember any type of self-care being taught in, in my degrees at all, right? So um, so I think the lack, and I, and, I, and I never really learned it at home either, right? It was just always, you know, work hard and and um, do the best you can do and always give and, and nurture others. And so it catches up to you over time. And so um, doing this work so, uh, you know, passionately and, and, you know, overdoing it for, for so long, it definitely has caught up to me. And so the burnout was a huge, uh, awakening in, in terms of, you know, my sleep and, and not, and having very low energy and feeling very low in my moods too. And, and, and seeing therapists and, and therapists kind of pointing out, Hey, do you think it's, it's attributable to you feeling depressed, <laughs> right. And, and having to confront those things and, it, and, and those moments and those conversations, right. And, and, um, you know, these moods and feelings and experiences are also, um, a process, right. It's not, these labels are not definitions, which is another highlight, uh, a thing that needs to be highlighted is, you know, the stigma around it. Um, you know, I didn't grow up talking about mental health and a lot of cultures don't. Um, however, it wasn't necessarily a barrier for me or myself to overcome because I was in community work and we, and we are addressing those things, right. We're addressing the challenges more so. So even, so understanding what mental illnesses are, you know, they're, they're characterized by, um, these changes in thinking and mood and behavior, you know, identifying it in myself, right? You know, I'm exhausted, I can't get out of bed. And, and then just trying to navigate how, what, what resources do I have? What can I do to help myself and, and working less and eating more nutritiously and, and seeking healthcare professionals really um, helps, but it's a long-term process as well. It's not an overnight change. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, like yeah, you said, it's, it's a nuanced, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a regular habit that needs to be cultivated, right? Um, one thing I, I thought would be interesting to explore was when we're talking about kind of identifying these these challenges, these kind of symptoms of, let's say, burnout, of depression, anxiety, are there are there certain tools that you've kind of picked up along the way? Some of the tools that maybe you picked up from consulting, um, mm. just even from your specialist background, are there certain um, ways that you approach challenges and what has that what has that taught you? What kind of things have you learned from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think trauma-informed care is is, uh, is kind of the, the formal lens from which we work, and and I think a lot of people can, naturally are probably working from it. If you if you use 
if you have an understanding of someone's um, both um, upbringing and their environment. So it's really, you know, events and experiences that a person goes through as well as genetics to some degree, right? And so having that trauma-informed lens is really understanding the relationships uh, between what is, you know, those personal factors um, as well as the environment and, and the way we think and the way we perceive events and how we navigate challenges, right? Um, and so naturally in frontline work, you do have to have a deeper understanding because you're working with people from all walks of life. And so you're practicing that skill set, for example, of empathy more often than not, hopefully, obviously, you know, I can't speak for every frontline worker. Um, and so I, I do have to have an understanding that someone might be, you know, involved, um, who, who might be having challenges at school or at home or, or might be involved in drug or alcohol use or financial under financial stress. So, so understanding that the environment, the psychosocial environment really impacts someone's upbringing because nobody grows up saying, Hey, I want to have a mental health issue, right? I want to have a mental health breakdown. I want to burn out, right? No one has these, um, these, uh, these ideas in their head. So, so being compassionate, understanding that even if two people grew up in the same neighborhood, they can have very different experiences, right? Because perhaps age or race or, or home environment, um, so those are really important to know from a trauma-informed lens. They're kind of different names to it too, right? Like psychosocial development. There's so many psychologists. And now we have, you know, neurobiology catching up to, you know, emotional, social emotional learning and how emotions are impacting, you know, how we feel and, and our behaviors. And, and, you know, we have neurons in our stomachs. And and so now nutrition is is even more important than ever as well. So um, we kind of know these things. And so we have to actually implement them. So I would implement them in my own day to day, because if I'm not taking care of myself, how can I, you know, have the energy to take care of other people in a more compassionate and empathetic way? Um, there are lots of tools around that. I think um, role modeling them is important. So, um, you know, very simple things like not taking on so much. So if I'm practicing being able to say no, and understanding my boundaries and not overexerting myself, right, then I won't be so exhausted to provide greater quality work, whether it's frontline work, or whether it's more, you know, providing research and doing that work um, in a healthier way, right, or, or being able to have conversations uh, with students around that. So, so there are, there are a lot of different tools for different people. Um, it's hard to say, you know, what will work for you. For example, I prefer to go to a naturopath, and I find supports through through more traditional medicine, and obviously that's been around for thousands of years. Um, you know, reading books on trauma and healing, um, still reading those, even though you know you have a toolbox. It, it never hurts to read more and, and understand more in depth um, what these concepts are in terms of people sharing their case studies or their stories or narratives. So having a more holistic approach for me has been helpful. And um, I encourage people to to navigate that journey on their own as well, because it's hard to to just show up at a doctor's office and say, hey, I, I think I need this. And maybe you might not share everything, right? Or maybe the doctor might not even recommend you to the appropriate form of care. And I've also had friends who've, who've had um, therapists who are very unhelpful and very problematic and slightly racist or slightly, you know, homophobic or other things, right? So if you don't have an understanding of the diversity of, of, of humans, and, you know, holding and your own biases, perhaps, you know, your own upbringing, your own learnings, you might project those things and not create a safe space for people to build trust with you so that you can support their well-being journey. 
Absolutely. That's something that's so important when it comes to being not only proactive in how you seek self-care and seek these sorts of things, but also looking for resources that are, you mentioned Uh, going to naturopaths, going to exploring different options and kind of looking beyond just going to a therapist once a week. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, there's there's aspects of your upbringing, of your genetics, your environment. There's a complex relationship between all these things. So it it requires what seems to me, it requires a kind of nuanced approach that you're proactively looking at different activities, different uh, means of reaching out and Mm -hmm. sharing. Did you find for yourself when you're going through school, when you were kind of going through and navigating these kind of challenges, did you find uh, there were certain activities that worked for you when it comes to, you know, sports, Mm. um, campus events, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I've definitely been, I am definitely more of a, you know, seek help and and that independent person who does put in the the effort. and And I understand that for some, that's even a difficult thing to do to take that first step. So I've always been fortunate to be involved in sports. And I think if I didn't have that, you know, my mental health would be so much more of a challenge for me. So I was part of sports. I was part of UNICEF. I definitely got involved. And that was because of the earlier interventions, because I was involved in community at the community center in my neighborhood when I was in high school, you know, I, I I knew of and was more comfortable pursuing these avenues and I think it's more complex now because we live in such uh, an interesting time, right? Um, and and I and I feel for 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 younger folks because you know there's so many competing priorities and and it's it's hard to to slow down and 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 do things on a more consistent basis when it's competing with you know um, this hyper competitive capitalist unloving isolating society and further isolating with COVID, right? So so um, you know. We do, but then we do have tools, right? So I, I will listen to meditations on podcasts and on YouTube. I will do, you know, a yoga stretch. Um, I will do a 10-minute activity. I go for walks in nature. I find nature very grounding. And there are studies catching up finally to, you know, indigenous traditions of, and ways of being where nature is very therapeutic. And oftentimes the, the research just underscores the, the idea that multiple modalities will improve the success rate of a mental health concern, right? So if you have anxiety or depression, you're not just going to go on medicine. If you decide to do that, you would do, you know, um, perhaps medicine therapists and physical activity. And, you know, if you have a really good doctor, they would also look at like your nutrition, your environment and all of that. And, and if there are ways to navigate that, right. So maybe there needs to be, um, other, um, everyday skills like communication, right? So if you're unable to say no to the people and you're uncomfortable, assuming it's safe, right? Um, Then, you know, how are your relationships? Journaling for me is another one. And I always encourage that to younger folks. Journaling also is, is a way to actually, it actually alleviates and decreases the emotional impacts on your brain. So if you're able to, it's similar to when you're talking to someone or when someone is able to witness your emotions and feelings and events, it alleviates some of that um, repressed emotions and, and those feelings around it, right? To feel that support and that connection as humans. Journaling is a really non-invasive, you know, anonymous, non-intrusive way to, to just filter out and, and mind dump at the end of the day. Really powerful, simple tool. Um, and so doing all of these different things over time will restore and refill your cup, right? It's, again, it's not an overnight thing. And finding the right supports and, and taking stock, you know, what is and isn't working, right? Are there people around you? Is the environment challenging? And for some, that environment can't be changed, right? And that's the challenge, right? On the extreme end of the spectrum, 
Um, and so those need unique supports. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, listeners, for the first part of our conversation with Professor Salome Amadi. In part two, we're going to be talking about some of the more practical, holistic solutions and opportunities for addressing these challenges when it comes to college readiness and student wellness. For more information about Salome's background and current projects, check the show notes for links to her work with Humber Research and Innovation. So stay tuned for part two, and we'll catch you next time on CollegeCast.